Um, I'll start with a confession. I'm not a historian of Patsy Cline, and I'm not a historian of country music. I'm a historian of sex. And so perhaps this is actually the proper place for me to be positioned, thinking about the ways in which Patsy Cline fit into Winchester and didn't fit into Winchester. So my job here is to try and take the work of those people who have done so much interesting research on Patsy Cline and to try and fit it into slightly a different context. And so what I'm going to do today is to talk about two broad themes in relation to Patsy Cline. And the first of those is the notion of respectability. I want to talk about what respectability meant in post-war America, um, and especially in the post-war South, and why it was so critically important, and also about how some people during this period tried to challenge notions of respectability. And then the second thing I'm going to talk about is the notion of national culture, um, the growth and reach of national culture in the post-war era, the ways in which national culture during this time disrupts patterns of local authority in places like Winchester, um, and creates spaces in which some people in the United States are able to claim new roles and to find ways to circumvent the power of the established classes, the proprietary classes, the local elites, to um, claim new ways to live in American society. And I would say, um, as uh, the product of the South myself, that maybe no place in the country were those struggles so highly charged as they were in America's post-war South. And as I started trying to prepare this paper, I realized how much Patsy Cline was right in the middle of some of these struggles. Um, when I was starting to work on the paper and reading what other people have written about Patsy Cline, um, I came across a quotation in the, the biography of Patsy by um, Margaret Jones, uh, an interview that she had from one of the friends that Patsy had grown up with. And I'm going to read you this quotation. Um, she rolled her own hair. She did not go to beauty parlors. She didn't believe in perms. She rolled it. We would go to the movies with her hair in rollers, with a scarf tied around her head. She put on a little bit of makeup, though. Not a whole lot, just enough to make herself look pretty. Yeah, it was considered loose in those days, but she was different. I think she was too much for this town to handle. It was considered loose in those days, going to the movies with your hair in curlers. Um, this oddly enough, really struck home with me. And so before I talk and make my semi-academic case about respectability and national culture in Patsy Cline, I'm going to beg your indulgence to offer at least a little bit of my non non-academic credentials on the topic of Southern respectability. My parents met in 1956 on a blind date. My mother's roommate was engaged to my father's roommate, and they decided that they would be a perfect couple. They lived in Atlanta, and my father decided to take my mother to the Fox Theater to see a movie. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the Fox Theater now. It's been, you know, re redone. Um, and it was built as a movie palace in the 1920s on a Moorish theme. It was very elaborate. It had velvet hanging curtains, and the, the ladies' room was truly incredible. 
Um, it had stars in the sky that sparkled, although I'm not sure whether it was supposed to be the stars of Atlanta or the stars of Marrakesh, but nonetheless, it was, it was incredibly elaborate. But by 1956, the fox has fallen on hard times. So the hanging curtains are, are sort of tattered and full of dust, and the stars in the sky are sparkling, but it's not quite clear whether they're sparkling or whether there are electrical shortages happening. So they, they go in, and this is a double feature, and they sit down on the plush seats, and it becomes clear very quickly that the plush seats are infested with bugs. They had fleas. Now, they're sitting there at this double feature, and my mother, who was five foot five and weighed 98 pounds, was of course wearing a girdle because she was a respectable woman on a date. And the fleas were in her girdle. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know whether my, father's was a, my father was a boxer or a briefs man at that point, but, you know, they, they were, yeah, and you, you get the idea. My parents sat through a double feature, and neither one of them mentioned to the other person that they were being eaten alive with fleas. They didn't even start itching until my mother had shut the front door of her house. And she said she spent most of the night in a bathtub full of baking soda and water after that. They didn't mention this until nine months later after they were married. Now, my mother loved to tell this story to us when we were children. And in my sense, you know, um, she said, I, why did you do this, we said. And she said, well, if I had complained, it would have seemed like I wasn't enjoying, um, you know, the entertainment he had selected for me. And it wouldn't have really been proper and polite. And, you know, my father said, well, if I had complained, it would have suggested I wasn't enjoying her company. And, and so when I was a child, I thought this was the most romantic thing I had ever heard. <laughs> By the time I was a teenager, I thought that this was just incontrovertible evidence that my parents were the weirdest people in the universe. When I went off to college, I took this as proud evidence of my southern heritage, and I was very fond of telling people that my family had been conceived in politeness. Um, by the time I started to become a historian, I started thinking, this is really interesting. This is about class. My father grew up in a corner of North Carolina, deep in Appalachia. Um, he graduated from a high school where his graduating class was 13 people, and his address was Lower Pigpen Road. My mother, um, her family moved to Atlanta, and as they told it, got so poor they couldn't leave, and she had grown up during the Depression picking dandelion greens along the railroad tracks. By the time they met, my mother was a high school teacher and my father was an aerospace engineer. So, you know, post-war mobility, living in Atlanta. Um, but they were obsessed with respectability all the way through. Um, and my mother and father were very concerned about raising all of us to understand the importance of respectability because they saw respectability as the entree into the middle class. And they actually understood things pretty well. You know, my parents, like an awful lot of Americans during this time, saw respectable behavior as the foundation of a moral and civil and legitimate kind of social order. But they also really clearly understood it as the price of admission into this broad, growing, post-war middle class that was very important to them. Now, respectability during this period, and this is where the history of sex starts to come in, took two interlinked forms. 
for women, respectability was very much about sex. And sex was not simply whether or not one had sexual intercourse, but the atmosphere that one created around oneself. Appearance was critical, but also sexual behavior. So for women, respectability was a ticket to marriage, a ticket to the right kind of marriage. Um, respectable meant marriageable at a time when marriage was really one of the only avenues for most women to gain uh, an adequate level of support and stability and a kind of general middle-class standard of living. Now, respectability worked in some ways in, in a kind of um, form of a sexual trust. Sexual behavior was based on moral and um, religious sets of standards, certainly. But it was also based on the notion that men and women have different interests. Women's interest is marriage. And men's interest, well, is sex. And the price of sex is marriage. Now, I'm not saying that you know, all individuals thought in these terms, but this was the larger social construct. And the price of marriage can't be sex if sex is readily available. So there was a very strong sort of self-policed understanding that if women had sex with men outside of marriage, with men who were not committed to them, that this undermines the, the larger process and destroys women's interest as a class. So there was a great deal of emphasis on the language of the market, and this is some of my previous research. She's second-hand goods. Affection freely given is cheap and valueless. It's not a language necessarily of morality, even though many people behaved in ways that were uh, respectable and chaste because of moral and religious convictions. But it's a language of value in the market. And the second way that um, respectability worked um, was in, in the sense of class. Um, for those who had the most secure class status had more room to experiment because they didn't run the risk of losing their class status. But those who had class vulnerability, especially in a period when people are, because of new forms of education and new forms of opportunity, moving into new class statuses, those people had a lot less freedom for experimentation. They had a lot less, a lot greater vulnerability. And you think about the ways in which notions of respectability worked during the 1950s. The civil rights movement is critical, 50s and early 60s. You think of the sit-ins, and this fits very nicely with, with what they were talking about. Um, one of the most powerful images of the African-American sit-ins was of highly respectable young people in, in um, suits and ties and in dresses behaving in um, a very uh, restrained manner, being attacked by people who are using vulgar language, who are violent, who are not respectably dressed. Um, it was very important in the civil rights movement in, in the early days to convey the clear sense of the respectability of the African Americans who were protesting and to contrast that with the uh, class violence and uh, less respectable behavior of whites. The second piece that you see it um, is in the 1960s and the great fear among adults that their children 
who were behaving in ways that weren't respectable, whether it was um, growing long hair or not wearing bras or having sex outside marriage or using vulgar language or uh, protesting, all sorts of ways, that this was not simply understood uh, in its own terms but was seen as young people throwing away the middle-class status that their parents had worked so hard to give them that their parents had saved and sacrificed and struggled and built this new set of opportunities for young people that really was dependent on behaving in the right way and that by having sex outside marriage or using vulgar language or you know dropping out of college and bumming around for a year that you were throwing your life away not simply that you were behaving like a young person respectability was key to entering the middle class world it didn't guarantee entry if you are on the wrong side of the tracks, you may quite well stay there, and you may quite well be happy to stay there. But for those people who tried to be noticed and approved, like Patsy, or for those people who tried to enter the middle class, which was not necessarily Patsy, um, bottom line, you needed to be understood as not violating the tenets of respectability in order to be approved. Bottom line, Patsy Klein was not respectable. She didn't fit those standards. She wasn't born to respectability. Patsy, as Virginia Patterson Hensley, was the product of a shotgun wedding. Her parents got married six days before she was born. Um, under He was under duress anyway. Her mother, at 15, was made pregnant by a 42-year-old man, who, her father. She wasn't bred to respectability. Um, you know, as, as you heard earlier, uh, the story is that Ginny and her family moved 19 times as she was growing up. Um, that was not simply because they chose to. She dropped out of school in 1948 in the beginning of her high school e uh, years, just as it's becoming much more expected, even though not necessarily legally required in Virginia, or not re legally required in Virginia, for young people to continue on in high school, even if they are not firmly in the privileged classes. Um, she was never confident of her grammar. Uh, she was quite willing to use language that was not ladylike. Um, her father was a mean drunk, and people knew it. Her parents fought constantly. Her father abandoned the family. These are all pieces that undermine respectability. She certainly wasn't positioned for respectability in Winchester. Um, she lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, and was very clearly identified by her geographic social position. And basically, she just didn't behave respectably as an adult. Um, she was not primarily concerned with fitting into the middle class values and behaving respectability. Part of the problem was appearance. Um, curlers in public, if, if curlers are in public or enough to, to put you outside the bounds of respectability, you don't have a whole lot of leeway here. But she, she pushed it a bit more. Um, her outfits were not only the cowgirl outfits that you saw there, but you saw the picture that they didn't really comment on on the short shorts. Now, Appearing in public in short shorts as an entertainer is not the same thing as wandering around town in short shorts, but it was still pushing the boundaries a bit. It was not claiming um, respectability and or even sophistication. This is a period when a survey of college students found that um, uh, this is actually Kansas, but you know it'll do. The University of Kansas discovered that a much higher percentage of young women thought that wearing short shorts in public was more, and this is the word, immoral than cheating on an exam 
or making out with a date. So, you know, appearance mattered. Um, and the other thing is that Patsy had sex outside of marriage. Um, she had, uh, while she was married, she had a long-standing affair uh, with a man who had two children and, you know, continued it after she was married. Um, and, and one story is that um, when she had been traveling, uh, had stayed with the, her manager, the man um, in New York, and that the concierge at the hotel had returned the coat she had left behind to the man's wife with a note of apology, uh, which became fairly uh, widespread knowledge in Winchester and didn't exactly help her reputation. So Patsy Cline was not respectable. She wouldn't have been respectable in virtually any part of the United States, but she was especially not respectable in the small town south. Now, she's not alone. Lots of people fell outside or put themselves outside or cared little about the boundaries of middle-class respectability, especially when those boundaries were drawn as tightly as they might be to be considered loose because you wear curlers in the movie theater. Now, the fact that she's breaking these rules really shouldn't have mattered. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. She's not well-educated. She is, by the standards of the time and some continuing standards, sexually misbehaved. She should have just been irrelevant to the, quote, good people of Winchester, to the adamantly respectable proprietary class. No matter how many times she popped up only to be squashed, no matter how many times she inserted herself into the Winchester Apple Blossom Parade, she should have remained irrelevant. She shouldn't have mattered to the proprietary middling classes of Winchester. But she did, and not positively. Why? Because she became famous. She became famous, and they weren't able to ignore her. She wanted their approval and their notice, and she was very, very visible, and they had to react to her. Patsy Cline became famous because of her talent. She also became famous because of her grit and her single-minded determination. But she also became famous because there were new spaces in 20th century America for people like her, spaces that ignored the rules and the restrictions of the immediate local communities. She became famous within national culture rather than first within lo or in local culture. Excuse me. So what I'm, I'm arguing here is that the growth of national culture in 20th century America, especially in the years following World War II, starts to disrupt local patterns and to interrupt patterns of local authority and makes new kinds of room for people to contest about visibility and about who actually matters. It makes people who have previously been ignored or squashed gives them an opportunity to make their name, not simply by running off to New York and becoming famous in New York, where it really doesn't matter anymore, but on their own turf, in their own hometowns. Now, the story of the rise of national culture gets very long and complicated, um, and I'm not going to try and do the whole thing, and so I'm going to give you a way too simple account and just focus on a couple of issues in the post-World War II era. The rise of national culture, the rise of national mechanisms of mass media and, and distribution um, leads in a kind of paradoxical way both to homogenization and to uh, the exposure of Americans to new and different forms and diversity. Radio, which was crucial 
and giving Patsy Cline musical models to follow, which um, gave her uh, musical knowledge, which shaped her aspirations, was an important step in this nationalization of culture. But radio, despite a few mega stations, mega power stations, um, and despite the circulation of eventually records and such, is still primarily local, and people can choose among an array of stations and position themselves very clearly. In the post-war U.S., what you get is television, and television narrows that range. It's produced largely, or much of it is produced for national audiences, at least in prime time. But at the same time, there are very few choices. Kids today have no clue what you're talking about when you try and get across the notion that there are three stations and then there's the test pattern. Um, you wanted to watch television in the 1950s. TV ownership had exceeded the ownership of refrigerators. Um, it, was, it was something that Americans were watching in great numbers. But you had three choices. So on the one hand, it's, it's homogenizing. You want to talk to people at work about what you saw on television last night. Well, it was one of three or perhaps four choices that you had to make. You watched the same things. You could garner a viewership of 75 or 80 percent for something that was really popular. Today, they think it's really spectacular if you get in the mid-teens. On the other hand, um, even though people were seeing the same things, it meant that people were exposed to more new choices because there were only three choices. How it works matters. U.S. television develops in a powerful capitalist system, N not a public system the way it does in places like Great Britain, but in a system where what matters is to deliver the audience. The purpose of television programming is to deliver an audience to advertising not necessarily to entertain. So the push behind television is to attract, in this case, a broad audience. It will appeal to those people who have money to spend. It doesn't matter whether those people have been defined as those with the best taste, if those people's, people are those who um, had counted previously in some ways. The broad swath of Americans with money to spend became an important audience here, and it wasn't, wasn't a niche market. It wasn't carefully targeted. Now, there was a limit. There was a fear of offending sponsors, of audience boycotts, of objectionable material. There was definitely a censorship code. And you probably remember uh, some of you, Lucy being pregnant, they weren't allowed to use the word pregnant on TV, and they slept in twin beds, and so it wasn't quite clear how any of this had happened. Um, you know, nonetheless, she did have the baby. Bottom line, though, is revenue, and conventional morality mattered certainly in a, play, in a country where people were concerned about morality, but it was really mainly an issue if it threatens federal action against offending broadcast rule, rulings or threatens a boycott or something in terms of advertisers and potential audiences. Um, if you didn't do something that was violating morality on the screen, you had a lot more um, latitude. So in 1957, Steve Allen and his show had Ingrid Bergman on. Um, she was, quote, a self-admitted adulteress. Um, and in, in the National Review, William Buckley wrote, uh, that this was a great affront to family life and morality because having a woman who had admitted to having adultery on this public forum was um, offending the, quote, social sanctions against the violator. But he didn't really have a prayer. Uh, you know, she she was popular. Patsy Cline, not being at all uh, Ingrid Bergman, was also popular. And so when she makes her name 
in a whole variety of places, but also appears on national television on the Arthur Godfrey show and then comes, um, you know, continuing on. Um, it was one of the top shows on television. It had an audience of 82 million people. She is exposed to a broad swath of the American population. So it didn't matter when her talent and her uh, determination brought her where she was, whether she was considered to be respectable in her personal life in Winchester, West Virginia. The pe respectable people of Winchester was, were not the people who were making the judgments. She was talented, she had presence, she was valuable in the arena of television and the record industry and everyone else. And one reason that she worked, one reason that she was able to gain this national prominence and not simply prominence among certain t country market, um, country music markets or whatever on radio, was that more Americans had started to count in the post-war era um, when they were able to, through their purchasing power in part, to extend their own preferences for entertainment um, and make people like Patsy, if there are people like Patsy, um, visible to a much broader market at the same time. So people who had grown up with country music, people who would never have come into contact with country music as well, saw Patsy Cline, heard Patsy Cline both on radio and television, and became fans. And so whatever struggles she went through personally, hoping to prove to the audience in Winchester, to the people that she lived with in Winchester, the people who, many of whom had rejected her locally, um, that she deserved notice, that she deserved their approval, that she had made it, in many cases that wasn't what mattered. She stepped beyond their realm of control and made it regionally and nationally, to a much broader audience. And that's what, in many ways, made it so galling to people in Winchester who saw Patsy Cline as something less than a woman deserving of their approval. So the Patsy Cline story, in my context, moving away from those people who know so much about her own specific career, you know, is, of course, a story of talent and determination. But in many ways, I'm saying it's also the story of the rise of national culture and the way in which a rise of a national mass culture offered a whole new way for Americans to choose who they wanted to hear and to circumvent the local power of those who had controlled so much of people's lives from the time before to offer new opportunities to some of America's people. Thanks.